Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. For the last 13 years, Tim Z. Hernandez has been trying to learn the names and stories of 28 passengers killed in a Central Valley plane crash in 1948. They were migrant workers who came to the U.S. under the World War II Bracero program, and they were being deported back to Mexico. The remains of the white pilot, immigration official, and crew were identified and returned to their families, but the remains of the Mexican passengers were buried in a mass grave in Fresno. We'll find out what Hernandez was able to learn about them and meet a relative of one of the passengers after this news. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. A plane crash 75 years ago outside Coalinga in California's Central Valley inspired this song by Woody Guthrie, performed here by his son Arlo Guthrie and Hoyt Axton. Oh, the sky plane caught fire over Los Gatos Canyon A fireball, a lightning that shook all our hills Who are all these friends who are falling like dry leaves The radio said they're just deportees Goodbye to my one, goodbye Rosalita Adios those nameless deportees were 28 of the 32 passengers killed in that plane crash on January 28, 1948. They were migrant workers being deported to Mexico. And while the remains of the flight's white pilot and crew were sent home to their families, the Mexican citizens were buried in a mass grave, their names omitted from a headstone and from media coverage of the event. But for more than a decade, Tim Z. Hernandez has been piecing together the identities of the Mexican passengers and the stories of their lives, and he joins us now. Welcome to Forum, Tim. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm really glad to have you. Tell me, how did you come to learn of this plane crash? Well, um, I'm born and raised there in the San Joaquin Valley in California. And uh, I was actually in 2010, I was doing research for another book, my previous book. And uh, I was actually looking up, I was at the Fresno Public Library looking up 
um, information and trying to find uh, labor camps there in Fresno County. And as I was typing into the microfiche, I was trying to look through the search engine, uh, you know, for, for old newspapers, I came upon this, uh, this headline, this, you know, really jarring headline. It said something to the effect of 100 people see an airplane fall out of the sky, ship plunges to earth and, you know, farm labor accident. And that just caught my attention. So that was, uh, that was the start of it all. Yeah, it was incredibly tragic and affected people quite broadly in the community, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, back in 1948, January 1948, when it happened, um, at the time, the report said that nobody there in the local community in Fresno County knew who these who the you know the victims were of this plane crash. Um, but even then, uh, there were over eight or over 500 people who attended the funeral services back then, and they were just members of the local Mexican farm working community at the time, and they went to pay their respects to their fallen brothers and sisters. How did you? then decide that you wanted to identify them. What was it that created that commitment from you? Well, you know, I should I should first say that I, I didn't, my education is in poetry. I have no background in investigative journalism or anything of that nature. It was just, and I say that because it was just truly my own a uh, very natural curiosity about what happened um, as a citizen, as just a concerned community member there in Fresno County. When I um, when I saw the headlines and I read the newspaper, I instantly recognized that it was based. Uh, it was a tragedy that Woody Guthrie had based his song uh, "Deportees" on, and I didn't know that it happened there in Fresno County. And once I did, it suddenly felt personal to me in a way. Um, and then it wasn't until I, I went looking to see where they were buried, I had heard or found somehow information that they were buried in a mass unmarked grave right there in Fresno. And it was about maybe two miles from where I was living at the time. So I said, I'm going to go out there and check it out. And when I stood there above this, this, this unmarked grave, um, just knowing that all these folks were buried there without you know, any names anonymously, no one knew who they were. And I imagined at the time, I don't, you know, I wonder if their families had ever heard about what happened to them. It just, that curiosity began to pull me. And, um, and very naively, uh, and I'll say this, I, I went to the cemetery director, knocked on their door and I said, do you guys have the list of names of people you buried there? <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's kind of how it all began. And that's really how it's unfolded over the last 13 years for me now, because it's just been curiosity and the mystery continuing to pull me and pull me and me, I, I just kept answering. Pull you from that very moment when you, you saw that nameless headstone, what did it actually say on it? Um, I don't have it memorized, but it was a, it's basically, it's just a marker. It's a small marker, maybe about two feet by, by two feet. And it says something to the effect of, um, 28 Mexican citizens who died in a plane crash, uh, buried here, January 28, 1948, rest in peace. Did it almost feel like mentioning their anonymity yeah. was almost more striking than not having anything written at all? That's right. Yeah, because it said then that someone knew and someone paid attention and someone knew that these folks were anonymously buried there. And rather than right the wrong and just bury them with their names, they decided let's just put a, a placard pointing out the anonymity. <laughs> to me, it seemed a little, you know, just uh, it just seemed disingenuous. Well, joining me now, we actually have a relative of one of the passengers, a great grand nephew. Mike Rodriguez. Mike, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. I, I understand that your your great aunt was was on that plane. Can you tell us about about her, who she was? Um, 
Correct. Yeah. It, so it was my my grandfather's sister, uh, Artia uh, Maria Rodriguez Santana. Um, and, you know, she was um, that generation of braceros, right, that came over in our family. And, um, you know, she and we really uh, didn't know a lot about her because our, you know, the the elders in our family didn't really discuss what happened to her. You know, and so um, so it was this whole process of discovery too, of discovering more about our family. Um, when when I just happened to run across um, you know uh, an interview um, on Twitter, you know um, uh, by NPR Latino when they were interviewing Tim Hernandez, and so uh-huh. uh, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty amazing story, you know, for our family. Yeah, you you say your family did not talk about it why, why didn't they talk about it mike um yeah you know it was just i think a lot of it was just the uh, a lot of the pain right um you know because our tia maria she was in her 20s you know when um when the plane crashed and she went down and so you know our, our great grandmother um you know uh, grandma antonia um you know she she really had like an iron fist of the family and and she really you know uh, you know when if if the, if she said like, you know, we, we don't talk about this, then, you know, we don't talk about it, you know? And so all of our grandparents, you know, um, you know, uh, didn't never really discussed it, you know, with us. Um, but luckily we were able to interview, um, the last gen of her generation, like on this side of the border, just, uh, after we learned about, um, the, the, the book, you know, all they will call you, uh, we were able to interview our, our tia Genia, right. And so, um, and it was great. We sat her down one day for like four or five hours, you know, and recorded everything. And we just said, talk about our family story, you know, and because we realized that it was important to hold on to these stories, you know, before, before, uh, before the, the generation disappears, right. And moves on. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to do that. And, um, you know, fortunately we did it at that time because the year after that, our Tia Henya passed away. And so, you know, if we had not sat her down, then there's a lot of things in our in our family's past that we may have never learned, um, you know, if we didn't do that. Yes. And you've been able to glean some details about your Tia Maria and what she had with her on the plane. Can you share that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so one thing that our Tia Henya told us was that, um, you know, in that, in that interview is that she she was a very giving person. You know, and, uh, you know, she came up to the United States, right, to California as a bracera, right, in order to do that, right, to to help out the family, you know, to make money. And so, you know, my my great grandmother, uh, Antonia, and great grandfather, Hilario, they, they opened up a uh, like a market uh, in Ensenada uh, after we came from Jalisco. And so everybody came over to kind of help out to build that business in Ensenada and, um you know, so when the plane crashed, um, and this is, I'm sure Tim will talk about this, right? He, uh, you know, in his, and he talked about it in his first book, um, there was um, where they, they found like, uh, you know, uh, uh, parts of a woman's body. Um, they also found um, like baby clothes, right? These blue baby clothes. And so when we told uh, our Tia Henya about it, because uh, our, our, our Tia Maria was the only uh, female migrant on that plane, right, of 28 migrants. And so when we told our Tia Henya about that, she said, oh, well, you know what? Those were probably your father's clothes, right? Because my dad, uh, Mike Rodriguez uh, Sr., or I guess the second, um, he was born six months before the plane crash in, in um, San Jose, 
And so our Tia Maria knew her, uh, knew him. And so he had already been back in Ensenada uh, by the time the plane crash had happened. And so she, she definitely said, you know what, those, those were for your, those were for your father, Mike. And so, um, you know, it was, it was kind of, uh, you know, it kind of hit me right there. Like, whoa, you know, um, you know, so she was a very giving person like that. Yeah. It, it hit you. It sort of made it really real to you when you learned about that clothes, those clothes. I wonder if you could just say a little bit more, Michael, about the impact of Tia Maria being named of of her being mentioned in this NPR Latino story, then you asking your family about it, just kind of what that impact has been on you. Yeah. So the only thing that um, I, I knew about her before, you know, the NPR Latino story was um, that we had an aunt who died in a plane crash and that was it. And it was because uh, my uncle Gonzalo in San Diego uh, told me that story and he's kind of like the family historian and really the, that was all he knew, right? Because uh, he, you know, that, that's all he had learned, like from from his parents, right, and, and her and their generation. And so, um, so when the the Twitter story came on, or the story came on Twitter, um, I was reading it, and I said, "Oh wow, this story sounds really familiar," you know. And so then um, I, I I emailed or I I messaged them and I asked, "Hey, so do you have the names of the people that were on the plane?" Um, and so they responded they said yeah well the names are in in the article and so i looked at the article and i saw the names i was looking down looking down at the close to the bottom it said maria rodriguez santana and i said oh wow those are like our family names and so first thing i did was i, I messaged uh, my tío gonzalo you know and he said uh, yeah that's her and so then i messaged my godmother b right because i'm a i'm a history teacher so i always learn to check my sources right and so i i emailed her i messaged her and she said yeah that's our tia and i said oh my god i just found the story of our tia maria and amazing so, uh, this was about- amazing yeah well let's hear more from you mike after the break this is forum i'm mina kim Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This year marks the 75th anniversary of a plane crash in the Central Valley that killed 32 passengers, 28 of of whom were migrant workers in the Bracero program, buried in a mass grave with a nameless headstone. We're hearing about the effort to name them and the impact that that's had. Tim Z. Hernandez is the author of the book, All They Will Call You, which is from the song, All They Will Call You Will Be Deportees, a line in a song written by Woody 
Guthrie about the crash and about the fact that the migrants remained nameless while the crew and pilot and immigration agent did not. Also with us is a relative of a passenger of the plane crash, the great nephew of Maria Rodriguez Santana, Mike Rodriguez. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What questions do you have about this piece of California history? Do you have any connections to that 1948 plane crash or to the Bracero program in your family? What are your reflections on the importance of naming the dead? You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 6786. Uh, Mike, just before the break, you were talking about the discovery of realizing and seeing your Tia Maria's name on that list. Do you think um, that being able to acknowledge that, talk about it with your family and, and have her named has been healing for you? Has the recognition been positive for your family? Um, yeah, I, I believe so. You know, I think um, what for one, I think learning the story uh, and then communicating w- with each other about it um, has brought us uh, a little closer, right? Uh, um, a little closer together um, in in knowing like who our Tia Maria was, but then also like honoring honoring her, um, honoring like her brothers and sisters, right? My grand my grandfather. Uh, all of my other tias as well, you know, our tia Henya, tia Micaela, right, who uh, who came here to the United States, right, to to make a better life uh, for us, you know, and so um, so I think it, it has been healing, you know, and and I think uh, a lot of families kind of go through like what we've our family's gone through as well, you know, where um, it's it's difficult sometimes to name trauma, right, or to discuss traumatic um, experiences, right, that are you know, that our parents or our grandparents have, have gone through. And so um, it, it's allowed us to kind of talk about that a little more, you know, and, um, you know, so it's been a great experience for us. I understand that you're also an ethnic studies teacher in Santa Ana. Do you share this story with your students? Oh, definitely, you know, because, uh, we, you know, the, lo- the slogan for uh, Santa Ana Unified Ethnic Studies is uh, our stories matter, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I always uh, tell my students, it's important to tell your stories, right? To tell your stories to each other, right? To make those connections with each other. And so um, actually last year, like I was, I was surprised last summer, I got a call out of nowhere and I was teaching a, a summer program uh, called the People's History of Orange County. And uh, Tim sent me a, a message, you know, and Tim said, hey, I'm in town. Um, can we meet up? And I said, even better. Can you come speak to my students? <laughs> and he said, yeah. I said, all right, let's do this. So like a day later, he was in my classroom and he was sharing this, you know, uh, the story, his story of how he was able to find the families. Right. Um, of, of um, you know, the, the, the plane crash and, uh, you know, and then. Um, you know, they, he, you know, they were able to sing songs, uh, him and his partner uh, sang songs, um, you know, and told stories. Uh, and so it was, it was amazing. And the students really got a lot out of it as well. I think they saw the power of like telling your family story, you know? And so, uh, so definitely I, I, I share, I share it every year. Oh, Mike, thank you for telling us about Maria Rodriguez Santana. I really appreciate it. 
Definitely. Thank you for having me. And uh, you know, I got to thank Tim once again for writing the book, you know, and, and, you know, for sharing it and, you know, helping us kind of uncover, you know, a piece of our history that, that was lost. Yeah. Mike Rodriguez, ethnic studies teacher in Santa Ana, great nephew of Maria Rodriguez Santana, a victim of the 1948 plane crash. Tim Z. Hernandez is with us, author of All They Will Call You, his book about it. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. Jennifer writes, while my family lived in East Africa, we went to a concert by the protest singer Julie Felix, who sang her version of Woody Guthrie's famous song. This was in the mid-60s, and I was a very little child. But remember the concert so vividly, we learned all the words without a clue as to the history behind the song. It was only after my husband and I came to live in California a little over 25 years ago that I realized what those words were really about. For me, it is a childhood memory coming full circle. Wow, Jennifer, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I, I, Tim, it sounds a little similar to that song, really, and you connecting it to that song, really having a lot of meaning for you. But then also just how music, it feels like, has been a real through line through the stories that you've learned and and the songs that have been associated with them. I, I'm actually wondering if you can... Tell us a little bit about Luis Miranda Cuevas, another person that you identified. Yeah, uh, I will. But, you know, first, yeah, you're right. You know, uh, music is really the messenger in this in this case, you know, uh, the power of music. Woody's lyrics uh, actually took nine years before a young college student, Martin Hoffman, found the lyrics of it, or the poem that Woody wrote and turned it into a song. Yeah. And I like to think that that song is the message that carried around the world because this song has been translated in different languages around the world for 70 years that song was kind of in the in the in the air you know until waiting long enough for someone the son of migrant farm workers born and raised right where the accident happened to come along and say i'm going to i'm going to try and answer the questions in his lyrics in his lyrics he writes who are these friends all scattered like dry leaves and my, I feel like that was my mission is to answer who they are, you know, um, mm -hmm. and that that is uh, Mike Rodriguez and his family is one of them. Um, and as Mike mentioned, you know, at the time for his classroom, it's important for young people to learn about this story. I brought along my partner, a musician, L.A. based musician, Ana Saldana, and she sang the songs and, you know, made that connection. So music has been powerful, a powerful messenger in all of this. Um, one of the other families, the one you're talking about, Luis Miranda Cuevas, uh, is one of the families I found early on. Uh, Mike's family, I should say this, Mike Rodriguez's family and the story of his Aunt Maria, they're actually appearing in my second book, the follow-up to All They Will Call You, which is, I just finished writing, and, you know, I don't even have a publisher yet for it, but but I'm working on that. But that's his, his family's in the second book. The family of Luis Miranda Cuevas is in the first book, All They Will Call You, the one you're mentioning. That family was in Jocotepec, Jalisco. I went there in 2015, with uh, with Guillermo Ramirez, who's one of the descendants of the passengers also. And uh, we went together with a small team for two weeks in central Mexico, knocking on doors, coldly knocking on doors, trying to find some of the families. And this is one of the first families we found in that way. Uh, they were in Jocotepec. Luis was a young man. Uh, his father worked as a farmer in the in the mountains of Jocotepec, near Jocotepec. And he was pretty much the man of the house as a young man and him and his mother and his three siblings. And they were, um, you know, poor and they didn't have mattresses. And Luis told his mom he was going to take a job as a bracero working in Watsonville, California, to pick strawberries, to make money just to buy mattresses for his siblings. Mm. And uh, 
And, you know, at the time I thought after we had, we had stumbled upon, well, we had looked around and we ended up sort of miraculously, I'll say, finding this family in Hokotepec. It was through just a sequence of events. And the family said to me, you know, after they shared all these stories, they said, these are all secondhand stories, Tim. We, none of us were alive when our uncle Luis was killed. So these are just things we've heard. And when I asked them, I said, is there anybody who might still be alive who would have known him personally? There was only one name that they came up with, and that was the name of Casimira Navarro Lopez. And I said, who's Casimira? And they said, and then first they argued, they said, amongst themselves, they said, she's not alive. She's not alive. Yes, yes, she is. She's not alive. Yes, she is. Come on, I'll show you. So we jumped into one of this, this gentleman's van, and we all drove us to her house. He was adamant she was alive. And when we got there, sure enough, she's alive, and she remembered Luis, and she said Luis was her fiance. They were set to get married when he was killed. Oh and that was a powerful story. Uh, then we all sat down and just began to listen to her story. And yeah, it was a beautiful story of her. They were going to be married. He he had called her from the detention center in San Francisco, actually, was where the detention center, where they were, where they were detained before they were boarded on this airplane. And he called her from the detention center and said, I'm, you know, they're sending us all back. And when I come back, Casimita, I'm going to marry you. I'm going to ask for your hand in marriage. And uh, I'm going to bring you a mariachi, he said to her. And she said, wonderful. <laughs> okay. And that was the last she had ever heard, heard from him. He yeah. was going to bring her a, a mariachi. Yes. <laughs> That's so beautiful. Gonna... Yeah. You, you were going to say something else. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, she said that. She said that the next or a few days later, I don't know how long after that phone conversation, she and her sisters, who were all around her age, they went to the Stoner, the corner store and listened to the radio. That's what they used to always do, is just to kill the time. And they listened to music and they danced on the street right there and hang out. And that was their little hangout spot. And that it was there at that corner store with Luis's brother at the time, too. He, he worked at this store. So they were all together and the radio had a news bulletin there in Mexico. Uh, and the news bulletin said a terrible accidents happened. An airplane carrying Braceros crashed and killed everybody. And they read the list of names on the radio. And that's how she found out Luis huh. was killed. Wow. Yeah. Did she know what song he was going to have the mariachi band play? Well, you know, it's the it's the one song I think that every that every family that I've asked, or just about every family I've asked, whenever I ask them what's the song. Uh, that you would want played or, you know, even at the memorial funeral, uh, the memorial services for the headstone there when we had that event. The one the one song they all turn to is Mexico Lindo y Querido, you know, and that's a classic. Um, and, it, you know, in the words uh, talk about, you know, if I should die far away from you, Mexico, then please tell them I'm sleeping and return me back to you. Oh, wow. And here it is. La mañana quiere cantar su alegría a mi tierra mexicana. Yo le canto a tus volcanes. That's Jorge Negrete singing Mexico Lindo y Querido. And we're talking with Tim Z. Hernandez, who discovered the significance of this song for one of the passengers who died. In the Central Valley plane crash 75 years ago, Luis Miranda Cuevas. 
I want to bring someone else into the conversation now. Mireya Loza, Associate Professor of History at Georgetown University, also author of the book Defiant Braceros, How Migrant Workers Fought for Racial, Sexual, and Political Freedom. Mireya Loza, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm wondering if you could just help us understand uh, a little bit more about the Bracero program and what life was like for Braceros. The stories that we have heard have been that it was extremely hard. (laughs) It definitely was. It was hard. It was difficult. And, you know, folks didn't have very many choices. And so many decided to try to improve the quality of their lives and their families' lives with this guest worker program. It began in 1942, but lasted much longer than World War II in part because growers had become very dependent on a low-wage agricultural workforce uh, with very few rights. And so, you know, it's by design. Over 4.5 million contracts were issued during the duration of the program from 1942 to 1964. So we're not talking about a couple of thousands of Mexicans. We're talking about a lot of people and sort of reshaping these migratory circuits and really reinvigorating Mexican-American communities that were already here and then creating new Mexican-American communities in places that hadn't seen very much Mexican migration prior to this period. So it's a very complicated history. I mean, it comes also right after the Great Depression um, deportations And so it really just shows you this kind of character of American immigration policy that, you know, in some periods, you know, they're very hard and deport. And in other periods, they recruit um, guest workers. And then simultaneously, sometimes you have both of these paradigms existing in the same time periods. Hmm. The way that the Braceros who died in this plane crash, the way that they were erased and their remains were treated, was that surprising to you? No, it wasn't. I mean, there were a lot of discussions about transportation accidents during the period of the Bracero program. There were many car accidents, truck accidents, bus bus accidents, and this particular plane uh, accident is horrific, but it is one of many transportation accidents in which people really struggle to figure out, you know, whether their bodies would be repatriated, what they would do. And many families on the other side didn't really know that they were supposed to receive compensation, um, you know, for the death of their family members. Many of these men were also insured by growers. And so there's a lot of miscommunication on, you know, on, on behalf of basically folks in the U.S. that should have communicated to family members in Mexico what happened. And there were no repercussions for this? No, I mean, not not very much. I mean, those weren't the accidents weren't the only sort of abuses that happened um, during the program. I mean, there were large scale human rights violations, both, you know, with compensation, living conditions, food. And so this is probably just one, I shouldn't say probably, this is one of many acts of sort of erasure and violence towards these men. And when people tried to speak up, or could they, did they even feel they could about the dehumanizing conditions that you describe? What well, that's the complicated part. You know, when uh, Braceros did push back, when they did claim their worker rights, when they attempted to communicate to the Mexican consulate or government officials what was going on, 
growers could easily just, you know, pack them up and try to send them back to Mexico. And so oftentimes activists were at a loss because when they find out that there was egregious human rights violations, they try to make their way to the camp as soon as possible. And what they would find is that these workers were gone. And so these growers held all of the power. And I mean, I say growers because, you know, this is a point in American history where, you know, these farmers aren't really farming the land. They are growers. They have many, many, many farm workers come in and do the labor. And we have this really interesting conceptual shift where we separate basically ownership to land and work on a land. So we've developed this category called farm worker, right? Where these people really don't own anything but labor tremendously. And they literally built agriculture, agri uh, you know, agriculture in California. I mean, California was the largest employer of braceros. I mean, it just hands down, They, I mean, the state was. And agribusiness was built on the backs of these men. We're talking with Professor Mireya Loza, an associate professor of history at Georgetown University, about the Bracero program and California's history with Braceros as well. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation at 866-733-6786, emailing comments to forum at kqed.org, or posting them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're also joined by Tim Z. Hernandez, author of All They Will Call You, which is about the 28 migrant workers in the Bracero program who died in a plane crash and were buried in a mass grave with a nameless headstone. Andy writes, my mother loved Joan Baez, and we listened to her music on an eight-track tape player in our camper traveling through California in the summer of 1974. And that's how I was introduced to the history of those lost in Los Gatos Canyon through Joan Baez's recording. We'll have more of your reflections, remembrances, connections to this story. And if there's a piece of your family history that you've tried to learn more about and want to tell us about it, you can. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
The stories of migrant workers killed in a Central Valley plane crash 75 years ago are being told thanks to the work of my guests, Tim Z. Hernandez, author of All They Will Call You, and Mireya Loza, associate professor of history at Georgetown University, author of Defiant Braceros, How Migrant Workers Fought for Racial, Sexual, and Political Freedom. And you, our listeners, are sharing your connections or reflections on the Bracero program or the 1948 plane crash and the songs that memorialized it. If there's a piece of your family history that you've tried to learn more about, that you want to tell us about, that you've wanted to excavate and have been worried will be forgotten, you can share that at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org or by finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Or if this is making you think about just the importance of naming those who have passed and the impact of erasure. Feel free to share that too. Mireloza, I understand you have a family member who was a part of the Bracero program, part of Bracero history? Yeah, I do. So my very first um, uncles came to the U.S. as Braceros. My father followed in their footsteps as an undocumented worker after the Bracero program. But I spent um, many years in graduate school working with the National Museum of American History, building the largest repository of Bracero oral histories. You can find them on braceroarchive.org and basically hear the stories of families impacted by the Bracero program and workers who were part of the Bracero program. Do you get a lot of people who have family members who are in the Bracero program wanting answers? Definitely. I actually get a lot of inquiries, a lot of them, uh, with people who just want to know more about their particular family member. And I think part of what is most difficult is that there are no, there's no one sort of master complete list of all of the workers that came through this program. And so because of this, many family members are at a loss as to how to carry out this research, where to go about even accessing the small partial list that exists um, throughout archives in the U.S. and Mexico. And so the hard thing is telling folks, breaking the difficult news, there's no one place to punch in the family member's name and find out definitively whether they were guest workers or not. And the records were pretty haphazard. And, you know, both basically governments, the U.S. and Mexico, didn't really pay as much attention as they should in keeping really accurate records of who was coming in. I got it. Tell you, Tim Hernandez, hearing Mireya say that reminds me of just just the terrible record keeping that occurred with the migrant children who are arriving at the border as well. I'm so curious when you think about when you think about this this omission of the names and identities of the people who were killed in that plane crash. Do you feel like you see echoes of it today? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and I want to say, uh, for me, the the pursuit of this story and finding out, unraveling the mystery behind it is never really specifically about immigration for me or the Bracero program. Those were kind of peripheral to, to what my main concern was. And the main concern, if there is any theme to this work for me, it's the larger theme of dehumanization, mm-hmm. um, of invisibility or erasure. Those to me are the larger themes. Uh, obviously in this case specifically, it's it's immigration, um, but in the case of this story, but whenever whenever I think of dehumanization, you know, I think that's that's the that's the very plague that is allowed for um, 
you know, for a lot of these atrocities and injustices to happen over time, you know, for, for eons, you know, going back to, I mean, there's genocides because of, because we're not able to, one human isn't able to recognize the human in the other, uh, you know, or the humanity in the other, we're able to commit these types of atrocities, you know, we're able to put children in cages, we're able to put people in prison, we're able to see, we see police brutality, uh, even mass shootings because of this, this, I feel like this theme or this, a plague of invisibility, you know, that we, that one human being is not recognized or seen that in the other. So for me, that's always been the concern. And and it, it still is, like you just pointed out, you know, there are incidences uh, that we can continue to point out uh, where we see this playing out in different, at different degrees over and over again. And for me, um, there was just, for me, the plane wreck at Los Gatos was really probably one of the, the greatest metaphors, I think, that we could use to uh, be the example for this. Because with all good metaphors, anyone who, who comes upon this story gets to make their own meaning of it. And that's what's happening with the plane crash and the story is people are coming upon it and finding their own meaning, just like some of your callers who can call in and, and share various stories of what it means to them. Anybody who reads this story in my book or hears about it, you know, um, they get to make their own meaning of it. But at the end of the day, I feel like if there is any point, it is about how do we address dehumanization? How do we fix that? I see no greater way to do that than through telling the stories, as as Mike Rodriguez pointed out, and as uh, Professor Loza is pointing out as well. You know, we share the stories with one another, not just the stories of the Bracetos, but our stories today matter. Who we share our stories with, hmm. whether in intimate circles or whether in public circles, that to me is how we combat dehumanization. Well, Rona writes, it is so hard to really feel the grief of people who are anonymous and erased. After the mass shooting in Half Moon Bay, it feels like the five Chinese farm workers who died were barely named, with nothing shared about their lives or families. I hope we are able to learn from the past to help the present. Uh, let me go hmm. to caller Sinclair in Anaheim. Hi, Sinclair. You're on. Uh um, hi, ma'am. Um, uh, this is such a fascinating subject, and I'd like to thank uh, Tim and Mike and all the other um, people who've worked so hard to get these poor souls recognized. Um, I'm a 31-year resident of Anaheim uh, via Zimbabwe in Africa. When my son was born in 1982, I played in the uh, song Deportee, and ever since then, he's been asking me every year. He just graduated from uh, UC Berkeley last year with a degree in English, uh, double major, English and African-American studies. And he wants to know, bothers me every year, and I'm glad I got into this program today, uh, why can't we repatriate all of those poor souls back to Mexico? Hmm. The other thing is I would like to be involved in any project where we approach the uh, modern-day editors of the newspapers that carried the story and ask them to put in a, a little honorary piece where they rewrite that story with kinder words towards the people that lost their lives. So oh. That's all I have to say. Well, Sinclair, thank you. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Tim, in terms of Sinclair's... Well, first of all, it's amazing, as you say, how much that song really captivated the minds, in this case, of Sinclair's son, but also just of... Newspapers that omitted their names or feeling satisfied with not putting them in, um, doing a rewrite to make up. No, that's a beautiful idea. There's been a lot of really great ideas. I'm always open to collaborating on any of them, you know, um, any of them that, that we can, um, you know, make happen that would honor this story in, in some way. But to that, I will also say that, 
you know, there are specific sort of indirectly that's already happened. Um, there are some uh, very specific newspapers uh, like the LA Times is one of them, uh, but there are many others also, several others that originally wrote the story without their names, called them deportees, but today have already done uh, one or two stories in some cases uh, on this on this search, on my search, and also on these families. And uh, most recently, Gustavo Arellano of the LA Times did a wonderful, beautiful write-up of this story. And for me, like you said, indirectly though, it really does correct, you know, it tells us that we're at a different time now and a different place, and that we have people who are like Gustavo Arellano, you know, working for the LA Times, telling the stories as they should be told, honoring the individuals mm. with their names. And so, you know, times have changed. Uh, we have some of, some really, I think, uh, accountable writers and responsible writers um, I think we could always have more uh, who are doing that work in newspapers and media, but but we're certainly seeing a growth of that now. I don't think as it's as um, it's at least uh, you know at least in this in this in the case of this story, I don't see that happening anymore. Obviously, it's a story about names, and they're they're starting to right those wrongs. Um, albeit they they don't you know outright say, "Hey, we're correcting what we did once upon a time." But to me, that is what's happening here. We're starting yeah. to see that now. Uh, yeah. Let me go to caller Barbara and Hollister. Hi, Barbara. You're on. Thank you. My name is Barbara Saunders. And when I was 15, my grandfather had passed away. And then my grandma fell and broke her hip. My mother went down there to help her, but they had a small farm. And so I rode the Greyhound several days a week and didn't go to school. And I was in high school then. And the buseros that were riding the bus kept me fed, uh-huh. cheered me up while I cried, oh. and took care of me because nobody else in my family could at that point. And I didn't have any brothers and sisters. And then after I got married and had kids and I moved to Hollister, there was still a lot of farm workers out here. And I'd be trudging up the road, marking underground lines for PG&E. And these ladies would motion me over because it'd be cold. They'd have hot soup or something. And they continued to feed me all my working life just out of kindness because I didn't need it. And I owe them a huge debt because my own family did not do that. What a, a beautiful... They gave me enough help to keep my heart from breaking completely oh barbara thank you for sharing that story what a beautiful portrait uh, of their kindness um yeah Mireya Loza, it, it reminds me a little bit of um what you were saying about your connection to this through your uncle um and and also about Barbara talking about this kind of coming full circle with PG&E, just about all the ways that um, the legacy of the Braceros uh, continues. This listener actually wants to know, Leslie Leslie wants to know what the connection is between the Braceros and the subsequent and current H2A program. Yeah, it's a great question. It's actually a very combined destiny. Uh, you know, the H2 program uh, began as a program to recruit uh, workers from the British West Indies to this East Coast, uh, East Shore uh, uh, corridor of agriculture. And so primarily they'd bring in workers from uh, the British West Indies, Jamaica, to work in places like New Jersey, Florida. 
And what happened after the Bracero program is the Bracero program came to an end in 1964, but the H2 program was still around. And so growers actually started using the H2 program to recruit Mexican workers versus solely workers from the British West Indies. And it's continued to slowly grow. So in essence, Mexican guest workers never left the U.S. after the termination of the Bracero program. And growers learned to use the H2 program as the new sort of guest worker uh, recruitment model to bring uh, Mexican guest workers in. Now we see that, you know, especially in the 2000s and teens and the early um, aughts, I would say, uh, we see... uh, these workers being recruited most heavily in places like North Carolina, Georgia, but lo and behold, with the militarization of the border and with this growth of detention centers, what we also have is California growers starting to use also in this this sort of period uh, of the 2000s, this H2 program. And right now we have about a, a little over a quarter of a million Uh, Mexican guest workers coming in through the H2 program, about 90, I want to say 92, 93% are Mexican. And so we're seeing the continued sort of uh, growth of this program. And we're seeing that politicians and all sorts of folks want to use it as an avenue for immigration reform when clearly it's not. And workers are still getting exploited, very similarly to the Bracero program. And there definitely is a historical amnesia as to why the Bracero program ended and the severe human rights violations that brought it to an end. And so it seems to me that it is a great moment to revisit the Bracero program, especially in light, uh, in light of the fact that many people are looking at the H2 program as a way for growers to have their cake and eat it too. Do you think that these criticisms of the H-2A program are well known? Um, I think they're not necessarily getting as much attention as they should get. I mean, the, the, the same things that happened during the Bracero program with people not having enough to eat, not having breaks, uh, suffering from severe dehydration, um, having basically subhuman living conditions, having very little access to you know, legal re- resources. Um, same stuff is happening now. And we're seeing guest workers suffering uh, from, you know, with health issues, but also occasionally passing away in the field. And I don't know that, I mean, in my eyes, there's never enough attention to the people who really every day wake up and feed us. And there isn't enough, um, there isn't enough uh, dignity that we bestow onto these people who do everything in their power to nourish our bodies. Mm. We're approaching the end of the hour, Tim, but speaking of dignity, before the last break, we heard the song La Valentina, and I'm wondering if you could just quickly tell us how you got to learn that that was a really meaningful song to one of the passengers on the plane. I I understand Ramon Paredes Gonzalez. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ramon, passenger Ramon Paredes Gonzalez. Uh, he's the he's the relative of the grandfather of Jaime Ramirez, the first family that I found there mm-hmm. in Fresno. And uh, Ramon's daughter, Caritina Paredes Murillo, was still alive um, in her 80s when I found them. She was in Mexico, and I got to interview her and sit down with her and ask her about her father and her memories of her father. And I asked her, what's one of the fondest memories you have of your father? You know, because this story has so much grief in it, and I wanted to try and find moments of light 
for the families. And so I asked her, what's one of the fondest memories you had? And she said, my dad would come home every day from work singing La Valentina to us, you know, La Valentina. And I said, what's that? She said, it's a song that he would, she goes, I don't know. He just always had it in his head and he would sing it all the time. And so I asked her to sing it for me. And, uh, and she was shy, but she did. She ended up singing it for me. Well, thanks for providing that recording to us. Let's hear a little bit of Caretina. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Michael writes, in the early 2000s, I learned the story of the migrants from the song Deportee in the Peter, Paul, and Mary album, Lifelines. There is a lot of social and self-consciousness in that album, and I adopted many songs from it to present in my Unity Church. But Deportee was too sad to sing in church, and I believed it was a legend and never thought of investigating it. Tim, we talk so much about correcting, and I think you have made an attempt in some ways even to correct Deportee. Can you talk yeah. about Lance Canales and the flood and what you've done so that we can hear this going out? Yeah, going out, I'd love to hear that. You know, I want to just say, though, really briefly that this is an invitation. I want this this uh, this interview here to be an invitation to anybody who's listening, because there are families I'm still searching. It's been 13 years. I'm still looking for families. So you can find their names on at my website online, timzhernandez.com. Look look up if your family's related. Please contact me. Also want to say thank you to Sasha Coca there who, at KQED, who did a wonderful job of following us around and also did a really great report that gives more light to this issue. And I appreciate you as well. Thank you so much, well as well, Mina, for having this, for having us talk about this. Um, the the collaboration with Lance Canales it came about because in 2012 I was invited to the Steinbeck Center in Salinas and to talk about this. This was very nascent in the research, you know, and and I and I invited my friend Lance because him and I are from the same background, the same town of there in the Central Valley. And I, I knew his music was just a perfect match with my with my work. And so I told him, you know, do you know the song Deportee? He said, I know it from Bruce Springsteen, but I've never learned, I've never sang it. So I said to him, would you learn it? And he said, yes, I'll learn it and I'll come perform it. And we ended up recording it, uh, the first recording with the names included in the song. And Lance is the first recording of that. Well, beautiful. Well, listen to that. Thank you, Timzy Hernandez. Thank you, Mireya Loza. Thank you, Caroline Smith, for producing this segment. Thank you, Sasha, for inspiring today's show. Thank you, listeners. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You ask who are these friends all scattered like dry leaves? Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, 
June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.